I'm Leah Carey, and this is Good Girls Talk About Sex. This is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. Before we get started, I want to tell you this. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with the things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. In today's episode, we'll meet Kate, a cisgendered white woman in a monogamous heterosexual marriage who is 37 years old. Kate is a stripper in Portland, Oregon. I met her one afternoon when I visited Sassy's Club with a friend of hers, and she sat down to chat with us between sets. Kate immediately debunked every myth I'd ever heard about strippers. So I asked her to sit down with me for an interview. Our conversation went on for 90 minutes, and it's fascinating. There's so much we couldn't include in this episode, so you're going to want to hear the whole thing. Now is the time to head over to patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex to access all of the full, uncut interviews featured on this show. I'm so pleased to introduce Kate. So, Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Awesome. This is, this is interesting. <laughs> so um, the first thing I want to ask you is about your first memory of sexual desire. Hmm. I should probably ask myself that question, too. I think about <laughs> it. Um, I had a crush on a boy that was maybe two or three grades ahead of me from an early age. I'm trying to remember... I must be maybe five or six years old. It's the first I can recall. And I, I mean, I had a, I had a crush on him and I, I already had a sense of, I don't really remember where I got it, but of what sex was or kind of what it involved. I don't think I understood any specifics, but I wanted that with him. He was maybe eight. <laughs> I was like five. <laughs> He's the, yeah, that's the first crush I remember. His name was Jason. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and he had three brothers. He was the oldest. Yeah. And this, this, the, the, the third of them, he was the oldest. So the third boy was about two years younger than me and he had a hopeless crush on me. It was, it was <laughs> tragic. It went, it, was, it went on for a few years. Yeah. <laughs> and did anything ever come of it in no. any direction? <laughs> no, nothing ever. <laughs> Never once. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> so what that sort of like schoolyard little girl crush, was there a sense of like, was that real sexual desire? You know, time? for, okay. When I thought it was, I thought what I was kind of feeling was like normal and like everyone was that way maybe. And it was when I got a little bit older, perhaps like a teenager, I guess, that I realized that some of my feelings might've been a little bit more visceral than other little girls. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I had, I, I'm like, I said, I'm not quite sure where I, I mean, I guess it must've been through some sort of like observation of, of sex, seeing it on TV. Um, 
hearing it across the hall from my parents or something. You know what I mean? I have some sense. Well, I don't, I don't really recall how I knew what it was that I wanted, but I did, I did understand that. Wow. I, I, I mean, I remember that it wasn't like, Oh, I want to go just hold his hand or something. You know, I remember kind of not wanting people to know it too. You know what I mean? Like I already, not only did I kind of know what sex was and, and what the tone of that was as opposed to, Oh, you're cute. Let's like hold hands like on their bicycles, you know? I mean, I, I understood the tone of it and I also understood that I should not say anything about it or I should not act on it already at that age, already at five years old. I, I understood that somehow as well. Interesting. Yeah. What was the conversation in your home about sex? Was that, was it a sex positive home? Um, well, you know, so my, my parents split up when I was really little and I, my mom, after a pretty bitter battle with my dad, gained full custody of me. So I predominantly grew up with her and she remarried fairly soon. Uh, to my, my stepdad, Brad, they've been apart for years now, but, um, and they were, I mean, my mom was weird about, so at the age of, by five, we, we hadn't had any talks about anything like that. I mean, the only talk, I mean, we'd had like the potty talk and the, you know, all, you know, wipe your butt and all that kind of stuff, but we hadn't had anything about, that resembled a sex talk that I can remember. That came when I was maybe seven or eight, but in a weird way. And, um, my mom, like I mentioned, my mom and dad had a really bitter, um, custody battle over me. And my mom didn't really have a, she never really hid anything from me to a point that I would say was kind of abusive. And some of my first knowledge of kind of what sex was is she took it upon herself to let me know that he had herpes and that he, and that he was, you know, that he had dressed up like a woman. And, and my mom has changed some over the years. Um, or maybe she just keeps her mouth shut, but she's actually quite bigoted when it comes to, um, homosexuality, bisexuality, and, you know, transgender is just like another fucking universe for her, I think. Um, but I, you know, sex was introduced in this weird way where it was like, this is normal, healthy sex. And this is what it is. But it was also an opportunity to really dig at my father. And so when I look back on it, it was really fucked up thing to do to a kid. What's your first memory of sexual shame? It goes pretty far back. So... I was in San Antonio. My, my mom's sisters, my aunt and her family were there. And, um, she had two, I have two cousins. Chris is the younger one. He's about three years older than me. And I was tiny. I don't even know. I mean, I, I barely remember this, but he took me out a ways past their property off out of their yard. And, uh, he, wanted me to touch his penis basically to play with him. He was a little boy himself. And I just remember him being mean about it and I didn't want to. And I just, it's mostly emotions. I remember, I can kind of remember this scene and 
I didn't want to. And he was, I remember realizing I had to basically and not say anything about it. And I didn't think about that for years until fuck. I mean, I must've been, I was in my early twenties and there was all these pictures and some of them were from a trip to San Antonio. And there were all of these photos in my aunt's front yard and down the driveway in, and I had this pink jumpsuit on and I saw the pictures and it was like, <gasps> and I just remembered the pink jumpsuit and it, I was just like, and the way that that fucking asshole treated me throughout my whole childhood, I know why it was now, why he was so fucking mean to me. Yep. Yeah. He, uh, that was, but that first, I guess my first memory is, is coming back to the house from that and not being able to knowing I, I couldn't tell anybody what happened at the age I was at. I don't think I could have really articulated it that well either. Sure. But I knew it was wrong. It was really wrong. Mm -hmm. And I don't ever recall it specifically ever happening again. Actually. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it did. But. Do you, it sounds like you didn't hold that as a really conscious memory. Do you think that it affected you as you got older? Mm, I don't know. You know, I, I'm not sure. I mean, there were, honestly, there were other things along the way that, that did, you know, so it, I'm not. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I remember, I always remember having an inherent dislike and kind of fear of Chris throughout my childhood. And, you know, I mean, and my aunt and my mom, like when they would come to visit, I mean, I remember them talking about like, why is he like this to her? I don't know what to do about it. It was like a fucking thing. And, um, I, and I, I don't ever, I never really thought about that, you know, when I was, at any other point in my childhood, it was only when I saw those pictures and it just all kind of, it was the little jumpsuit, you know, I, I remember, cause I remember looking down and trying to put my hands in the little pockets of it. Yeah. And, um, I remember it was cold and I remember what it looked, you know, it was just all of that. And I just was like, Oh my God, that's, yeah, I don't think it ever did affect me until later. Mm-hmm. So what about your first sexual experience? Do you, when did that happen? Um, it was the summer between my eighth and ninth grade year is kind of when I got out into the world a little bit more, I guess. And, um, we moved to this little town called Estes Park, Colorado. And, um, I met some, I was hanging out downtown and, uh, there was this girl, Jennifer, that I became friends with and she was a year older than me and she was dating this sleazebag named Steve. Steve. Yeah. He had a mustache. He was an asshole. Um, <laughs> he was, uh, and you know, Steve, was, was, was hot shit. And, uh, one day somehow it was just like the smoke cleared downtown, downtown Estes Park, you know, where all the little hood rats hung out. 
And uh, it was just me and Steve, and he had this shitty apartment across the across town, and and it was like I was gonna walk back home, and I pretty much had to walk by that by the hub in order to go home. So he was gonna walk me, and he offered me offered. Uh, he was like, it was a hot day, I remember, and he's like, oh, do you want to get some water? Or maybe it was even a beer, I don't remember. And we got in there, and he um he told me I was pretty, and kind of like started flirting with me, which I thought was odd. And, um, I remember being concerned with Jennifer being a friend Mm -hmm. and and all that. And somehow or another, he, I don't know, like he just kind of persuaded me and, uh, we made out for a little while and then he went down on me, which no one had ever done before, not even close, you know? And I really didn't know how I felt about that. But I left there, I remember after he did it, he acted kind of like he had done me a favor. And I remember saying something like, well, I didn't ask for it. <laughs> I don't say that, but it was something like, well, I, how would I have, I don't remember what I said, but it was probably, it was like probably, you know, something <laughs> you can imagine. Like, And um, I left and... It was such a shitty apartment. It had like shared bathroom down the hall and he was walking out with his toothbrush as he walked me down the hall. And I just, I, I just do, I remember walking all the way home, just being deeply confused about what had happened. As it turned out, Jennifer never got upset with me or anything. She thought the whole thing was kind of funny. She was cool (laughs) like that. She was ahead of her time. (laughs) Did you have any pleasure from? No, really? I was just. I found it to be a little stressful and I was confused about what I was supposed to be experiencing. I just was, I was confused about, I mean, I knew what was going on. I'd found a copy of penthouse forum <laughs> at some point, you know, in there, but before that, but I, I just, yeah, I just, I, I remember, I remember the anxiety about Jennifer also being a big part of it and also just not really being attracted to Steve and wondering kind of how this even happened. <laughs> But you learn from those things. Yeah. So I remember the first time somebody went down on me and I was a very late bloomer. So this wasn't until the end of college. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but he went down on me and I, I did enjoy it. And then he treated me like he had done me this massive favor. <laughs> and same thing. I didn't ask you for that. I didn't ask you. I, I didn't have that. What, did, what just happened? <laughs> that was mine. I was like 14, you know? So I, yeah, I was just totally confused about it. And now I look back and I was like, you could have been arrested for that. Okay. Well, cheers. <laughs> So what about your first sexual experience where you were like, hell yes, I'm in. Yeah. So that actually didn't, uh, didn't really come for me until I had had sex quite a few times with Mm. a number of people. Um, but I guess the first time I was really able to get any pleasure from it, I was in high school. I must've been about 16 and I was dating this guy, Zach, and, uh, we didn't sleep together for a long time into our courtship, I guess, into our relationship. But, uh, he was the first person I ever felt pretty comfortable enough with. And, uh, 
And I don't, I guess I had a couple of orgasms throughout, you know, but even prior to that, I just, I was into it and I found it enjoyable and I was figuring things out. Mm-hmm. He was one of the only people that I felt like I had gone after more, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that had something to do with it, looking back on it. That you were all in because yeah, I he, he had, was your choice. Yeah, I had huh. been decidedly the pursuer. And so that was, I mean, it's not that I'd never had a crush on anyone before or anything like that. But, you know, the pressure had always been kind of the other way. Mm-hmm. And when the pressure was off, I don't know, it was just easier for me to... I finally found out what it was like to be with somebody that wasn't just trying to have sex with me, you know? And so that made it easier for me. Something about it, at least in those days, turned me off. Now it's a little different. I mean, now it's like, no, it's not quite so black and white, but back then I think there was something more valuable about that for me. When you say it was easier, what does that mean to you? Um, it was easier for me to let my guard down. It's different when you're in the position of the pursuer. You're the one that's going after somebody. And so then when, when you kind of get what you want, it's something you've been wanting, you know, but when somebody's kind of more pursuing me as, as a kid, it's not this way anymore, but as a kid in the beginning of my sexual experience, it felt more like giving in. Do you know what? And and, and it's different now, but then that's what it it was. And, and when you give in, you know, in most of the time, you know, in life, when you give in to something like that, it doesn't mean you surrender completely. You just let, this thing happen, Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean you fully relax or you, you know what I'm saying? Like during those experiences where you quote unquote gave in, do you feel like you had pleasure in those? Mm, Yeah. Sometimes I, I mean, I, my, the first time I had sex with somebody, it was with this guy, his name was Isaiah. And it was in Estes Park in that little town that I was in Colorado. And it was, uh, I don't really know to this day. I don't know if I would really describe it as rape, but it was coercive. And I, and when I say coercive, I mean, I think that some of the other people that were in the house that at that time, they knew that, you know, his goal was, to have sex with me and it didn't really matter that much if I wanted to do it. And, um, yeah, that it was, it was fucked. That, that was fucked up. And so after that, I just never, it was just difficult to, to look for anything that, uh, yeah, it was, I mean, this, this guy, like he decided he wanted to date me and I think he just went through some kind of, cursory dating courtship stuff with me just in order to have sex with me. Did I 
fight him off away from me? No. Had we been going out for a minute? Yeah. But based on what happened afterwards and everything, it's pretty clear to me that, you know, he planned to fuck me that night and that's what was going to happen. So it's just good that I didn't really put up much of a fight. You know, does that make sense? Totally. It was kind of a, um, when I look back on it, it was, it was really messed up and, and I, and I knew it. And there was a bunch of drama that happened in my peer group after that because he went around fucking a bunch of girls mm. and stuff that were, yeah, it was kind of a mess. And so, yeah, he was a real piece of shit. I bet he still is. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I wasn't really very positive now. Yeah. Uh, and so I was, just, was, I had kind of a bad view of sex after that for a while. Yeah, I can understand mm-hmm. why. I think there are still a lot of women who don't understand coercion. Like the, that there's this idea that either it was rape because I said no, or it wasn't rape because I didn't say mm-hmm. no. So can you, if you're comfortable, um, talk a little bit about what that coercion looked like? Yeah. In that specific situation. Mm-hmm, exactly. Okay. So, okay. This is to, to set up the setting. Like if this was a movie we were starting or something, it's, it's January. It's in a small Alpine mountain town in Colorado. The weather is horrendous. Everyone is basically stuck where they are. And I am at the home of my new boyfriend, quotation marks. And there's a number of other people there. And um, there's nowhere to go Mm -hmm. because it's a blizzard outside and there's booze and there's nowhere to go. And he's going to, he wants to have sex with me and he's my boyfriend and boyfriend. And, uh, why shouldn't I? And so after a while, yeah, there's really not much of an option in a way. Uh, I mean, everyone's wasted. What do I do? You know, um, I mean, when the situation is such that I can't walk away, I can't walk out into the the environment and I can't get anyone to take me because we're up on a hill. I mean, it's just physically impossible for me to get out Mm -hmm. and there's eight hours left until morning Mm. and there's speed there and booze. No one's going to sleep. This is what's going to happen. Do you remember what he said to you? It it started out with, you know, a very not pressury kind of line of reasoning, you know, of like, well, you know, it's like, Hey, it's a blizzard, baby. <laughs> you know, like we might as well, like, I mean, it kind of started as, as innocuous as like, well, you know, we got to stay warm kind of thing to pretty soon. It was like, well, you know, when are we going to get another opportunity like this? You know, then it became, this is the only time we can do this. And then, um, there was the general peer pressure from the other people in the house because his asshole friend, Justin was there. And then, 
I can't even remember who else was there at this point. It's been so many years ago, but, um, there was maybe two or three other kids there and, uh, it was difficult to avoid because it just starts, it, it goes from, Ooh, this is a great idea. I mean, we'll only get this opportunity again to, you we're not going to get this opportunity again. And I remember in the last few things he said, I haven't thought about this in years. Um, he was talking about how other girls, other girls would love to have sex with, with him kind of thing. And I'm not really sure why I let that work on me, but it did. And, uh, it was the first and the last time though. I never really gave a shit after that. And this was all combined with, you know, while sort of making out and, and being in some sexual activity throughout the evening and it just kind of getting, I don't want to say forceful, but maybe pushy, mm-hmm. um, deliberate, con- con- continuous, you know, yeah, like kind of just, I remember feeling like he was just breaking down the barriers. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Totally. Like, but kind of slowly. And it was, you have to understand, I was also, I was heavily intoxicated mm-hmm. too. So my, while I have memories of it, you know, the, the, the irony, the, the, the terrible irony of this, this whole situation was that after all that happened, our partying woke up his adoptive parents and they came down there. And even in that blizzard, they offered to take me home right then. And I said, okay, let's go. And I got home that night. That was, that was the, that was the real fucking kicker of that one. If I had just, if we had just been a little louder, a little earlier partying or something like that, I would have just been able to scoot. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my particular situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There is no single answer that's right for everyone, so I'm going to help you discover what's right for you. And we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating and exhausting. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM, exploring consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring your sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life, and together, we can help you get there. 
For more information and to schedule your discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. I guess I want to ask you the obvious question to get it out of the way, which is that I think a lot of people assume that if somebody ends up as a dancer, it's because either they don't have any other options or they're so damaged that (laughs) what else are they going to do? Yeah. So would you like to answer that? (laughs) Oh, I'm not, I mean, I don't know, you know, it's like, I don't know. Sure. I'll answer or else I'll say my piece on it. Um, you know, I, I would also be like, what the fuck happened to you that you want to become a cop? What the hell happened to you? You want to become a, a marriage counselor? What the fucking shit happened to you that you want to be, you want to work for our government? That what the hell happened to you? You want to be, be in the army? You know, I mean, it's, you know, what the hell happened to all of us? It, it it's this fucking world. And, um, it, so as far as that goes, I mean, I, I don't, I'd like to answer this in like a empirical evidence kind of way, but I don't know that I can because, you know, I talk to my, you know, my dancer friends and, and because of the nature of our work, we talk pretty openly, maybe more openly than I've talked about things in other, because I've done other things for a living. I've, I've bartended, I've worked administration jobs, you know, like those jobs don't, don't always facilitate talking about things like this. So sometimes to me, it does look like the people I know as dancers have had more um, proximity to sexual abuse or physical abuse or, or just um, parental abuses of various sorts, you know, and, and that we're like these, these damaged people, but I know a lot of fucked up people that aren't dancers. I know a lot of people have survived far more acute sexual assault than I have that have never worked in the sex industry. So, so how did you get into dancing? I I had been working uh, for my dad. My dad owned a huge nightclub in Seattle for like 17 years. So I was helping to manage it. I was doing all the jobs. I was kind of working on working towards a career in that field. Thought maybe I might open my own place up someday. Um, and so I was kind of getting all the experience and then it just tanked. My dad made some really stupid decisions. Some things happened in Seattle city politics that made that, that neighborhood, you know, developers started lusting after it and businesses in that neighborhood started dropping. And there's a number of factors that made us just lose our asses massively. And so with the Phoenix, that was the name of it, the Phoenix gone unable to rise again. Um, I've found myself fairly embittered with, uh, the idea of opening up a place. I saw what happens when business partners break up. I, I lost a whole bunch of my own money in it, even actually, even at that age, a whole bunch. And, uh, I thought, well, fuck this. I'm going to go to college. So I went for a while and all the you know, I was piecing it together with bartending shifts here and this kind of shift there. And, and it was just every quarter my schedule would change. And I was like, I just can't, God damn it. I can't do this. You know, something's got to go. And so my friend, I was living in Seattle. My friends were like, I had a few friends that worked at the lusty lady. Yeah. The, the, the old peep show, the lusty lady. And they said, well, why don't you give it a try? And I had, I had already 
done some pole dancing classes and stuff like that. And I was kind of curious about the world of it, but Seattle strip club scene is very skeezy compared to what is here. And I, especially then I was just uncomfortable with it. Um, but there seemed to be a, some form of remove or safety at the lusty lady because there was glass between you and your customers at all time. It was like a peep show, you know, like put money in the slot, the window goes up, there's dancing ladies on the other side, that kind of thing. Um, and if, if I knew then what I know now, um, I would have realized that that glass is not a barrier of any sort in fact at all. I mean, it, it might be a physical barrier, between you and that person, but it is not any sort of emotional barrier or barrier to the knowledge of, of the human condition that you're about to be just thrown into. Um, so I, I got, if I had, no, I probably never would have even, yeah, I, I never would have even gotten into it, but I did. Uh, and I lasted several years there until it closed. <laughs> so how do dancers fit into the world of sex work? Okay. Yeah. So there's, there's facets, degrees, um, of, of sex work. I feel like what we do at Sassy's for instance, um, or like what the girls do at say Lucky Devil, Devil's Point, Mary's, you know, a lot of the more like reticent to say upscale strip clubs, but you know, that allotment of strip clubs, it's very minor sex work. It's like, it's super vanilla. We have sanctions in place and laws in place in our clubs, in the state and in our clubs say, you know, you can't touch us or, you know, it's, it's not that people don't do it, but we can say no, you know, you, you know, it is against the rules. You can't do it again. I mean, as far as, let's see, how do I break this down? One thing that dancers have in common with all other sex workers is that we are selling a fantasy and people always say that. And I think sometimes they don't really understand what they're saying when they say that it's my job to try to f figure out what this man or woman or couple is wanting from this experience and to give that to them. Now they can tell me, you know, a man can come in and be like, they can be obvious and be like, I love feet. I want to touch your feet. I'm going to give you money. But it almost never happens that way. We love them, but it almost never does. What really happens is you're dancing and you have to notice where their eyes are wandering. Mm. And nope, I've only been up here for one song and he's looked at my feet three times. So now you conduct an experiment, you know, and so you, you have to, they have something in their mind that they want and you, or maybe a number of the other girls working can make that happen for them. Um, but it's up, it's up to us to facilitate that in a natural feeling way for that customer. And that's the fantasy that you're selling. Sometimes they like for it to be your idea. Sometimes it needs to be their idea and you just have to plant the idea of, would you like some dances in their head? You know, um, but that's what we have in common with everyone else. Now what they get, at, what they get at Sassy's is me kind of sitting on their lap and talking with them and being sexy and dancing, you know, dancing for you. But you know, what you might get from a high price escort or something 
is it's, it's really the same process. Now it's many degrees less extreme, severe, what extreme than being an escort and actually having sex with somebody and, and because it's a lot more, it's, it's a lot more risk. There's bodily fluids exchange. It's, it, it's private. There's a much, um, higher physical, uh, risk for physical harm. There's a longer time commitment. The fantasy is more involved. So like the, the fantasies that I sell, you know, these, these guys, guys are worse than women, but these guys, you know, when they're looking at me, they're seeing whatever they want to see. They'll get me mixed up with some other girl that doesn't look anything like me because people see what they're looking for. You have to see what they're seeing when they look at you and then try to sort of be in line with that. Mm. And it's a different experience when you're doing that in a public place like Sassy's and when you're meeting someone in their hotel room. Mm -hmm. The fantasy is much it's much more involved and that's why it costs more should fucking cost more. Um, and then like what I was doing at the lusty lady is somewhere in between. I did, I did live one-on-one -on -one masturbation shows with people where there was glass between me and them, but we could talk and everything like that. And you are masturbating mm -hmm. for them. Or oh, they, they masturbate. Oh yeah. They masturbate for you too. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, there's so, you know, when I came from the lusty lady and came here to Sassy's, and started making, you know, good money. And I was kicking myself in the ass so hard. I, it's not that I would never do what I did at the lusty lady again, but I'd never do it for that. <laughs> I had no fucking idea, girl. Never again. Uh-uh. So, so, you know, I was at a level of sex work that I wasn't being compensated properly for mm -hmm. because the fantasy I was doing for people was several degrees further out than what I do for people at Sassy's. So I learned all kinds of things about like the culture of sexuality all around the world by the way that like, and then what kind of men would be drawn to me and stuff like that. I just learned so much about sexuality by just the people that would come in and tell me what they were into. And, and, and also some of it was not even like cultural type stuff. Some of it was just like every powerful looking guy in a suit that I see nowadays, I just expect him to have lacy purple underwear on underneath. I just, I'm <laughs> scarred. I'm scarred for life. Like I just, because the men that I saw in suits always had on like lacy underwear underneath. Like it just, I mean, I'm sure lots of men in suits are wearing regular men's underwear, but just, it was just the cross section that I got to see it just... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and for, for some reason, all, I don't know what it is, all of the East, East Indian men, East, they just, they just want to come on your face. That's all they want to do. That's it. It's like, it's the only porn they have there or something like that. I don't even know. Friends, if you love these conversations, I would love your help to keep them going. There are three ways you can participate. Two are free, and one is for listeners who've got a few extra dollars each month. Number one, take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to your Instagram stories. Tag me in your post, and if it's public, I'll reshare and send you a personal thank you. 
word of mouth is the best way to build buzz for an independent show like Good Girls Talk About Sex. And the more people listening, the healthier our collective sexual experiences will become. Number two, don't want the whole world to know you're listening to a show about sex? I get it. Perhaps you heard something in this episode that reminds you of a past conversation with a friend or something you wish your partner knew. Send them a link to this episode and a quick message about why you think they should listen. And number three, if you have the resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's absolutely no contract or obligation. You can cancel at any time. Plus, I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are currently being legislated out of existence. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And one more thing, there is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free to everyone. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access them. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you. Whether you're a client, a patron, a social media follower, or a silent listener, I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. Before we let Kate go, let's do the quick five. Five quick questions that we'd usually be too polite to ask anyone. Uh, Favorite sex toy? Um, Just, I like those, just those little egg, it's like a, it'll be like on a little, little vibrator egg. It's like on a stick, but it has the little egg on the end. Uh Those are very versatile. Okay. (laughs) Um, Oh, well, normally I would ask sex during your period, but how do you dance during your period? I just recently started having periods again when I got my tubes tied in April because um, I'd had an IUD for many years. So I've only had to deal with it once and I just I just use a, a tampon, but I just cut the string short and then fish it out. <laughs> so... I've heard that same story from yeah. friends in theater who have to do nude scenes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're just, yeah. You just deal with it later. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> some of these questions are not for people who dance professionally mm-hmm. because uh, I believe that you are significantly landscaped in terms of hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I assume that's a requirement. Um, yeah, I mean, everyone's kind of got their own style. And I like sassies because they don't try to dictate to you what you should do with your with your own pubic hair. But yeah, I, I'm fairly shaved somewhere between three quarters and 100% all the time, I'd say. How much maintenance does that require? Uh, it's a pain in the ass. Um, I usually, I wouldn't say I shave every other day. I shave based on like when I'm working, like like I worked last night, so I shaved yesterday and then I work tomorrow. Oh God, I'll have to shave on Thursday too, you know, but 
Like if I hadn't worked till Friday, I'd let that shit ride till Friday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, it takes as little, how much maintenance? As little as I can get away with. That's the answer. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's my answer too. Yeah. But I can get away with as, it for all really yeah, long time. As little as possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you prefer or have more ag- orgasms from penetration or from clit stimulation? It, I would say actually it's more about penetration for me. I kind of need both, but it's not that I can't come without penetration, but it's easier for me. Yeah. And do you like to have your G spot stimulated? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big part of, for like oral sex for me. It, it, most of the time in order for me to get there, I have to have at least right. You just, even just for a minute, you know what I mean? Yeah. So. Kate, thank you so much for doing this interview. I have absolutely loved talking with you and I'm really grateful to you for just being so vulnerable and open. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. This has been very, this has been a very interesting experience for me too. I, a lot of stuff I hadn't thought about in years or, or maybe I've never even have sat down and thought about so thanks for (laughs) thank you (laughs) it was very much my pleasure (laughs) that's it for today if you're enjoying the show please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on apple podcasts or if you're using another podcast app go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash good girls. And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Good Girls Talk for more sex-positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Until next time, here's to your better sex life. <laughs>